Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo One. Welcome to season two of the podcast, where we are going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week, I will talk to a new guest, and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid-fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, we would love for you to subscribe and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? Haddock Sport Performance provides a complete strength and conditioning experience designed for ultimate athletes. With over five years of experience at the elite international level and a global group of athletes, they have come to appreciate that training is a partnership. And with HSP, their goal is to provide each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly with you to get to know you as a person and as an athlete, and together build a plan for you to be your best in competition. If you are invested in your own success and performance, they are here to support you. To know more about their methods and philosophy, head to haddocksportperformance.ca or get a look at their day-to-day by checking out HSP on Instagram. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Evan Lepler. Evan is known as the voice of Ultimate. Commenting in every USA Ultimate Club Championship and USA Ultimate College Championship since 2013. Starting in 2014, he has been the main commentator for the American Ultimate Disc League's Game of the Week and Championship Weekend. He also writes weekly articles, the Tuesday Toss and Disc and Chat, for the AUDL. Prior to commentating in Ultimate, he attended Wake Forest University where he played Ultimate and was a captain for two years. His commentating experience includes commentating Atlantic Coast Conference football and basketball, since the 2015-2016 season, and he has commentated sports from minor league baseball to cornhole and axe throwing. Here is my interview with Evan Lepler. All right, I'm here with the voice of Ultimate, Evan Lepler. Evan, how are you doing today? Theo, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, excited as an aspiring Ultimate commentator myself, being able to learn from the best here. I'm pretty excited. So we're going to get right into it. Segment one, your journey. Can you tell the audience at home, first of all, how you got into Ultimate as a player? I know that's kind of your background first. Uh, People might not know that. So can you talk a little bit about how you got into Ultimate as a player and then as a commentator after that? Sure. I I think I first started playing Ultimate when I got to college. Probably a little bit in high school, I played some of the 10-on-10, 15-on-15, you know, (laughs) kind of no-end zone stuff that people famously play. But... I had never seen anybody throw a flick, let alone throw one myself, until I got to college. And why did I start playing in college? It really is kind of fluky as I look back on it. I literally saw a flyer on the door of my freshman dorm and just kind of felt compelled on a beautiful day with nothing else really going on just to go to the quad and play and immediately met guys from the guys team and girls from the girls team and and just started playing barefoot quad disc and just kind of fell in love with the the sport and the people and was amazed at what the disc could do. And I was reasonably athletic and fast. My disc skills weren't all that good, but, you know, I, I tried hard. I was very competitive. And I think, you know, some folks on the team took a liking me uh, to me relatively quickly. So that's kind of how I started playing. And, I mean, at the time, I, I don't think I went to college with a pair of cleats but I went and bought a pair of cleats because I learned that we needed cleats for actual practices, which were starting the weeks after. And 
Like my freshman year, I didn't expect to play that much. I was talking to older guys on the team and they were like, yeah, I didn't play very much as a freshman, but keep working at it. You'll get to play. And then I go to my first freshman tournament in Boone, North Carolina at Appalachian State. And like the senior captain calls me on the line for the very first point to the very first game. And it was like, oh my goodness, I'm actually playing. This is so cool. You know, I think for a lot of Ultimate players, that first tournament is a real special experience. So I remember that fondly and, you know, basically spent every day between my freshman and sophomore year that summer throwing and developed my flick, developed my hammer and went back my sophomore year. And I was really ready to compete, basically became a full-time starter as a sophomore and then started captain of the team my junior and senior year. And and just love to play, love my teammates. They're still some of my closest friends. And now, you know, 13 years later, after I graduated from college, I miss playing, but thankfully broadcasting has kept me very close to the elite levels of the sport. And the story of how I started broadcasting Ultimate, in 2013, USA Ultimate signed a deal with ESPN to broadcast the college club championships and the U.S. Open. And at that point, I was relatively tuned out of Ultimate on a day-to-day basis. Like when I was in college, I was all in. I mean, Ulti World didn't exist then, but I was, you know, reloading RSD, which was like what Reddit Ultimate is now. Sitting in class, hitting Control-R, being like, is there anything new on RSD? That's just kind of how invested I was in Ultimate nationally. But I'd say after college, when I was doing minor league baseball and doing, you know, college football and college basketball and just trying to find my footing in the field of broadcasting, I I, I would still go to Wake Forest Ultimate practice every now and then. And I would toss and compete whenever I could. But for the most part, I wasn't tuned in. So it was actually a, a friend that went to Wake Forest that forwarded me the USA Ultimate job posting saying that they were seeking a color commentator. And he's like, dude, you have to apply for this. And my initial thought, I was in the middle of minor league baseball season, was like, there's no way I could miss an entire weekend of baseball. I think I was in my fifth year as the broadcaster for the Salem Red Sox at that time. And in those first four years, I had missed three games total. To go to Wisconsin for Memorial Day weekend and miss four games seemed like I can't do that. But I thought about it a little bit and realized... Now, this would be a really incredible opportunity, and there probably isn't someone more qualified than I am, just from a level of broadcasting experience and background and ultimate experience background. So I you know, took an hour one day and tried to write a good kind of cover letter introduction and sent it to the folks at USA Ultimate and you know, had an hour-long phone conversation with them the next day. And didn't hear anything about it for three weeks and just kind of assumed, oh, they went with somebody else. And I was very focused on my minor league baseball season, kind of tunnel visioned into that. And then nine days before college nationals were scheduled to begin in Madison in 2013, I was at a ballpark in Zebulon, North Carolina, getting ready for a minor league baseball game, filling out my scorebook around like 445, 5 o'clock, and my phone rang, and it was a Bristol, Connecticut phone number saying, hey, can you be in Madison for the college championships? And, you know, I'm just like, crap, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to find someone to do my job in Salem while I go do this because I can't pass it up? And to to get to the point, I, I made it work and been really, really fortunate over the past seven and a half years since to 
call so many of the marquee ultimate events, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And it's really been a, an unbelievable journey that I'm, I'm super grateful for and you know don't take for granted. And hopefully on the other side of this pandemic madness, uh, when life returns to normal, we can get back to it. For sure. And uh, appreciate you sharing all those uh, all those stories there. And I want to backtrack a little bit to your ultimate career. So as a junior and senior, was your team able to make it to regionals? Were you ever a national level team there? Like, how did that look for you guys, uh, for your team? And then sort of what was your career and ultimate like post-graduation? Did you play club at all? Was that something that you were interested in? Yeah, so in college, I don't know if I'd say we were a national level team, but we I'd say we were competitive with national level teams. And we we did beat a couple of teams my junior and senior year that ended up going to nationals. One of those years, Williams College won the Northeast region and we trounced them in a in the I think a crossover game at, at Southerns. Uh, and we were very proud of that. It was a small school at Wake Forest. We were relatively limited. I mean, at most, we kind of had 12 to 14 players, you know, at a tournament that we'd really count on. But we really cared and we had really good team camaraderie and we competed hard. And so I was proud to make Division One Atlantic Coast Regionals all four of my years. And I think, you know, we were seated as high as eighth or ninth out of 16. So, you know, like... In a two-bid region, when you're the eight or the nine seed, you know, it was hard to, I don't know if I'd consider us national contenders, but I was really proud that we kind of fulfilled our potential, I felt like, especially my junior and senior year. And, you know, after college, I really wanted to keep playing, but I also wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And, and I had ambitions of being a broadcaster long before I knew what Ultimate Frisbee was. I mean, I really wanted to be a broadcaster since I was seven or eight years old, to be honest. So I kind of tried to play as much as I could. But if you think about it, for Club Ultimate, it's it's practices on weekday nights and weekends and tournaments on weekends. And when is sports broadcasting? It's, for the most part, nights and weekends. So my ultimate after college was mostly playing, you know, going to Wake Forest practice and helping them out when they would have me. And I've played in a few random tournaments here and there, played in a tournament in Alaska when I was out visiting there. Uh, my sister lives in Hong Kong, and I went to Hong Kong to visit her and played in a beach tournament there. And that was, I think, 2015. So I think that's the last tournament I've played in. And it was an amazing time. And, you know, I, I just turned 35 this summer. So I, I'm certainly not nearly as athletic as I used to be, but there's part of me that is kind of getting antsy to go back out and try to play some pickup uh, or even league, which I haven't done in a very, very long time. So, you know, I, I have a family now, uh, which makes it a little more difficult and also a fear of getting injured, which, you know, is not something I a fear that I really had in my 20s. But I hope at some point before I turn 40, I'm back playing again with some, you know, relative consistency, even if it's just pickup, because I still feel like I can throw athletically. I'm nowhere where I used to be. But when you get to be my age and you haven't, you know, like there are guys my age who are still competing at the highest level of the sport. But when you haven't competed at a relatively high level for a long time, you kind of gradually accept like, 
okay, I'm not going to be able to be that level of athlete again, but that doesn't mean I can't play. You know, I haven't pulled the trigger to go like go out and I don't even think pickup is going on where I live right now or anything like that. Yeah. But there have been times I've been out running and like, you know, have jogged past a pickup game. And, you know, sometimes it's intriguing. Sometimes it's one of those 15 on 15, like, you know, madness games. And as someone who's played relatively high level, you're always like, will that be fun or will that be annoying? But I think that's that's a predicament that a lot of, you know, guys have. And I'm putting myself into a level of relatively high players, which, frankly, I probably don't belong in. So but I, I hope to play again. It's it's such a fun, great game to play, an amazing exercise and a good way to stay in shape. Yeah, I appreciate the humility, though. You're just waiting to uh, get to the Grandmaster's level and uh, taking your talents there while everyone else is uh, wasting away there. <laughs> That's the thing. I used to pl- think that way. I used to be like, oh, I'll be able to play Masters or Grandmaster. Yeah. Like, all the top players, you know, the Goose Heltons of the world, they turn 34 and then they start playing Masters and, like, they're still going to be so much better than me. So I would play Masters if, like, no one who has ever played at Nationals before was allowed to play Masters. Like, that that's a division I could be pretty good at. But as long as those former great players are in there, then I'm, I'm skeptical of my ability to be a, a real impact player. Yeah, you're, bring, you're bringing your impact to the booth there. So let's talk a little bit about commentating. You said you had a dream when you were young of being a broadcaster. What sort of led you to that? What inspired you? Was there a specific person or a specific uh, sports game or event that really got you excited about broadcasting in the future? There's really been a lot of people. And I mean, I think first and foremost, just growing up watching sports with my dad, which is, you know, what we did almost every night growing up in Massachusetts, we were and still are, you know, Red Sox fans, Celtics fans, Patriots fans, Bruins fans. And I was fortunate to listen to some really great broadcasters growing up and just kind of became fascinated by what they were doing to try to describe what they see with words, to try to tell stories, both informative and humorous, to try to, you know, enlighten the viewer and magnify the whole TV watching experience. I just became pretty fascinated by that. And kind of also realized like I love sports these guys are getting paid to watch sports why can't I get paid to watch sports too and frankly like my dream has been to to make a living getting paid to watch sports and ever since I graduated college it was kind of a year by year thing and just kind of hoping that I can keep doing it before I have to go and get a real job and as I said I'm in my mid 30s now and I still don't feel totally secure, but I feel like I have a pretty good track record of, you know, nearly a decade and a half of professional broadcasting and hope I can do this for the next, you know, 30 to 40 years until I want to retire. And I mean, but that's obviously ways, ways down the road. So just kind of from a very early age, I've been fascinated by it. And I think because of that, I've always paid very close attention to it. You know, a lot of people say that, I, you know, you don't watch games because of the broadcasters. And I think for 99.9% of the people, that's true. But ever since I was 8, 9, 10 years old, I would watch games just for the broadcasters who are calling it. And that is still true to this day. If, you know, there's a broadcaster that I especially like that's calling a game, I will watch or listen 
And no matter what game I'm watching or, or listening to, I'm always kind of tuned in and thinking about, did I like the way they did that? Did I not? How would I have maybe done it differently? And just trying to pick up, you know, pick up little tidbits my entire life. And I've, I've long said, I feel like I'm kind of a, a conglomeration of the you know, 40 to 50 broadcasters that I've listened to that I most respect with a little bit of my personal preferences and personality mixed into that too. But, you know, a lot of my broadcasting has been just trying to emulate the people that I think are the best at it. I mean, I, I thought I listened to a lot of Red Sox baseball when Dave O'Brien was doing the radio there, and I thought he was absolutely excellent. And I was doing Salem Red Sox baseball in the minor leagues. And I often would say I'm trying to do a Dave O'Brien impression on the radio each night because if I can sound 50% like him, 75% like him, people are going to think I'm pretty good and and I'll do a good job for all the people that are listening. So it's funny because, I mean, while I've been doing it for a decade and a half, as I said, I, I still don't always feel secure. People often ask me for advice and I'm I'm always a little skeptical to give advice. I try to. But there's part of me that very much feels like I'm still trying to figure it out. And, you know, sometimes I'll go back and listen to games and feel, oh, I nailed that. And a lot of times I'll go back and listen to games or segments and be like, mm, that wasn't what I want it to be. How do I make it better? So I feel like I'm still very much a work in progress, but I've had pretty incredible opportunities to, to get better. And that's something I'm incredibly thankful for because I I have friends in the broadcasting industry who are excellent as well, who haven't got the same opportunities I've had, that I've had in a variety of ways. So it's it's been an interesting time over the past six, seven months just because of the, the way the world has been. And I missed the AUDL season this past year for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. But a big one was like I missed all those repetitions to be able to get better and continue to refine and try new things. And and just kind of expand my my horizons and abilities. It's an interesting time for a lot of broadcasters that way who, you know, kind of had momentum going and then I mean, but that's obviously not just broadcasting and that's the whole world. <laughs> a gazillion industries across the world that have been just, you know, brick walled by by this thing and and the world's reaction to it. So, you know, it seems like things are getting a little more back to normal. Like, I mean, I've done a, a football game and I've got another football game coming up. But at the same time, any game that I'm assigned these days, I realize there's a 20 to 30 to 50 percent chance that that game might not actually happen. And that assignment could get washed away before game day. So that's just kind of the world we live in now. So my last question is, Take the audience back here to the first college championship. That was your first broadcast with ESPN, if I'm not mistaken, 2013. And there was no scoreboards. I remember that vividly watching it on YouTube. There are no scoreboards for this broadcast, which is uh, kind of interesting. But take us uh, back a little bit to that first broadcast. How were you feeling that day? Were you kind of nervous, uh, excited? What were you feeling there? So I had a lot of feelings that day. For some reason, and I don't know why, the the YouTube broadcast that is now immortalized online not have any graphics they basically took like the naked raw video feed and put that online there was graphics and there were during the live broadcast and i don't know if there was something contractual or what when we were doing those live we had you know all the bells and whistles of an espnu broadcast 
But as for my, you know, emotions calling it that weekend, it was it was really surreal because I think I've said I didn't really dream of broadcasting ultimate at that level because I just never really envisioned it being possible. But I mean, I would sit on the sidelines at tournaments during buys. And I remember one time specifically, you know, you're doing that thing where I'm sitting up again, leaning back on one of my teammates backs and he's leaning on my back because we didn't have chairs to sit on. And I was looking at the field and he wasn't. And I was calling the game and he was doing color just off what I was saying without having even seen the game. So like that was my first broadcasting of Ultimate. And to be the guy who was calling that with Mike Cousins, who is an awesome broadcaster as well, uh, it was just incredible. I mean, other things I remember about that weekend, I, I flew out Friday morning after doing an extra inning game on Thursday night that went to like 1130. And I had a flight at like 545 a.m. So it was it was a crazy day. And, you know, I hadn't been to an ultimate tournament in a long time. So I like I was so busy with baseball. I, I had spent that whole week, you know, talking to people on the phone and trying to gear up for the context of the event and learning about every team that was there. But something as simple as remembering sunscreen, I did not do. So I got there and it wasn't sunny. That first day, it was overcast all day long. So I never thought about putting sunscreen on. But I was outside from like, you know, 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. And I got back to the hotel later that night and was just like, holy crap, my face was like beet red. And I was badly sunburned. So I think the next day I went and got sunscreen, but it was too late. So, I mean, I know Pat Stegemeller has made fun of me about this in columns and stuff. Like, I looked crazy red for those first few games that weekend on TV because I was badly sunburned. But, I mean, aside from that, I mean, there was definitely, like, a level of nervousness about knowing everything. I mean, I, I don't want to say I was nervous being on the air because I'm, I've been on the air enough. I'm comfortable with that from all the repetitions that I've had. And, you know, you do 140 minor league baseball games a year for five, six, seven years – you make mistakes and you develop a level of comfort just figuring out where you're going or not really knowing where you're going. You can still be comfortable in a, in a live situation. But I'd say play-by-play -play was my comfort zone, and that's describing what you see and figuring out new angles to look at things. Being the analyst, in my mind, was about being the expert. And I really wanted to establish credibility in terms of knowing the history of the teams, knowing the how the different top players and the teams have evolved from their freshman year to now and did they play in high school and kind of all the little nuggets of details that go into establishing yourself as an authority on those things. Like that was literally a eight, nine day cramming session for me to do that. And then talking to the players and coaches as much as I could in person. So because of that, I'd say my nerves were more based upon just wanting to make sure I was on top of everything. And inevitably, there are things that you don't know, and you're trying to project yourself in a way that covers up the fact that you don't know those things. So I'd say like now I'm way more comfortable doing any ultimate game because I'm doing play-by-play, -play and I can rely on another expert 
who has you know a history of playing at the highest level or has competed on the national team or whatever it may be and just kind of let my play-by-play skills uh, do that job and my ultimate experience allows me to I think ask more intuitive questions of the analyst now than perhaps you know the the play-by-play guy was able to ask me because my color analysts now are, are at a next level compared to where I was in 2013, 2014. But, I mean, that whole weekend was unbelievably memorable. I mean, for the most part, I hadn't really met any of, like, the USA Ultimate folks before. Meeting Will Deaver was really cool because, like, when I was in college, I would get the USA Ultimate or back then the UPA quarterly magazine, and, like, he was the guy running the UPA. So just, like, meeting him for the first time and knowing that he was a top-level player was super cool so i mean they everyone at usau was like super welcoming and and you know really praised the job that we did and that whole weekend is one of my greatest memories of my broadcasting life just because of all the people that i met and this kind of my initial voyage into broadcasting ultimate and it was obviously far from perfect but i i felt like it went relatively well and Obviously, they've they've had me back ever since, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And again, don't take for granted. Yeah, it seems like you're doing something right there, Evan, uh, if, if you're uh, continuing to do these big games. So we're going to move to segment two here, day-to-day life. So obviously with the pandemic, uh, AUDL season canceled, USA Ultimate Nationals were canceled. So how has that affected sort of your broadcasting in terms of uh, Ultimate? You've done some stuff with AUDL, kind of the disc and chat and things like that. So how have you tried to balance those things uh, during the pandemic? Yeah, it's it's been strange. I mean, I, I got on a plane you know, about 10 days ago from when we're chatting now. And that was the first time I'd gotten on a plane in more than six and a half months. You know, usually that's a weekly thing or twice weekly during some parts of the year. The the simple answer is I haven't traveled much or at all. And if I did travel, it was a drive instead of a flight. And I haven't called that many games. I mean, during the AUDL seasons past, I call at least one game every single week. And I, I miss calling live games. Now, during the four or five, six months of the spring and summer, I definitely still felt like I was very busy because I was still kind of churning out content for the AUDL to keep the feeling that ultimate is relevant and going on. And, you know, for much of that spring and summer, we were all kind of thinking we might get to start a season in, you know, July, August, September. So through March, April, May, June, it was like, okay, how can we continue to set the table for whatever abbreviated season we might have and, you know, shine the light on old great moments in the past. So I'd say like my favorite moments each week during those months were doing the Live with Lep Instagram shows I did on Wednesday nights and the AUDL Rewind shows I did on Thursday nights because those were my opportunities to connect with people and, and see how they're doing and rewatch old games. And I mean, during a time when you're not allowed to really be with people outside of your own family, those were my opportunities to connect with people all around the, the country and the world to talk about Ultimate. So I definitely felt like I was busy through the spring and summer, but obviously I wasn't traveling as much and didn't get the chance to call games. And, and calling games is what I love to do most. You know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to create content and in some ways feel like I 
can be a better writer than a broadcaster in certain situations, but I don't get the same thrill out of writing as I do broadcasting and, you know, 30 seconds to air and welcome to the event. And then for every single game I call, I feel like I am the caretaker of that broadcast for the people that really care about it. Whether it's just the competitors or whether it's the competitors and their families or whether you add in five fans or 50,000 fans that care, like I want to do a good job for them to make them enjoy the game and to not detract from the experience. So that's really like the pressure I feel when I get ready for a broadcast and it's, it's kind of a pressure that I cherish and didn't have that opportunity for a long time. So, I mean, now as we sit here in early October, ultimate season is is kind of over, and I'm still doing a little bit for the league, but I've kind of relaxed my ultimate responsibilities a little bit for the fall like I usually do. You know, I expect to get a handful of football games. I've already done one. In college football, you typically find out 12 days before the game, you know, two Mondays before what game you're going to have on that Saturday. So everything feels very tenuous now, but that's kind of the the day-to-day life I'm in now and prepping for games and also just kind of enjoying being a dad. And I've got a two-year-old daughter who's who's wonderful and uh, enjoying that as much as I can too. For sure. And in terms of a non-COVID year, spring and summer, what does your schedule look like then? Are you, you, as you mentioned, are you traveling like every week to different tournaments or with AUDL, you're obviously going once a week, but USA Ultimate also has some uh, tournaments for you to be at as well, right? Yeah, for the most part, the last several years during the non-pandemic times, I've traveled, you know, something like 19 or 20 straight weekends. And, you know, occasionally I'll get something that I can drive to, whether it's in North Carolina where I live or, or somewhere else close by. But oftentimes it's getting on a flight on a Friday and doing a game on a Saturday and then flying back home on a Sunday. And, you know, and then when I get home on Sunday, the clock is ticking for the Tuesday toss and Sunday night and all day Monday and Monday night, I'm usually reaching out to people around the league and gathering perspective and trying to chronicle the most important storylines and themes of that week, which is something I enjoy doing, but also also something that's a lot of work and kind of wears me out. So during the ultimate seasons in the past, I, like as soon as I would get the Tuesday toss filed to my editor, you know, usually late morning or early afternoon on Tuesday, then like I would breathe a huge sigh of relief. And like Tuesday night was almost like my Friday night. Like I would always cook dinner, like before COVID and kids, like we'd often go out to dinner on Tuesday night. Cause like, I'm breathing a sigh of relief. I want to just have a beer and relax on that Tuesday night. And then, you know, at times I would think of Wednesday and Thursday as kind of my weekend, my Saturday and Sunday. But the reality is I was usually, you know, producing some other content during those times, whether it was a written piece or podcast. Usually I would then turn to my game that next Saturday and, you know, spend that Wednesday, Thursday doing research, talking to people to get ready for that game. So, during normal times, that was kind of the schedule. And then, you know, then college nationals so shows up and, you know, preparing for college nationals is a beast because you have 40 teams from around the country that I've kind of followed peripherally, but not closely. And then the U.S. Open shows up in early August and you want to get ready for that. And sometimes there's a world championships event 
in, inserted in there like there was for me in you know, 15, 16, 17, and 18. I did world championships events in the spring and summer of those years. So it's every week feels like something new. You know, every week I'm getting ready for a new game and evaluating the new storyline. So I wouldn't say it ever felt stale in any way. The, 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 the toughest part was always kind of that ticking clock towards Tuesday to try to create a, a written tome of the week that I was proud to circulate because, you know, never really want to like take a week off, you know, either literally or just from a quality standpoint. Like I view the Tuesday toss as something that years down the road, you know, AUDL historians and other people that care about the history of ultimate can look back at these things. And what were people thinking at the time? Like how did the players and coaches and primary figures feel about these important events that happen over the course of these seasons? And I view that as something that is really valuable. And, and frankly, it's super va valuable for me when I try to remember things that happened in 2014 and 2016. Like I'll go back and reread things that I've written to jog my memory on the, the certain great matchups or crazy stuff that's happened in the past. And I'm grateful that Ultimate players, for the most part, are super forthcoming and eager to share like their deep perspective and feelings about what happened. So because of that, like that's an incredible gift that enables me to tell kind of deeper stories than a lot of people who are, you know, thought of as like the beat writers just kind of writing daily recaps and stuff like that. For those who might not know uh, sort of what it takes to even just broadcast, in terms of let's say you're at Nationals, what kind of preparation do you need to do? Are you reaching out to a bunch of the top teams, players, like to get perspective? What's sort of the prep like just to give the audience a bit of perspective on that? So preparing for Nationals at the club level is definitely easier than the college level. Because the college level, it, it feels like there are new teams in the mix every year, and there are always new students, you know, entering the game. And, you know, I don't cover a lot of high school ultimate, so all the players are relatively new. I mean, occasionally you know some junior national team guys that are big names entering college. But when you prepare for college, it's it's not necessarily a blank slate, but there's there's not as much continuity. Compared to club, where there is a good amount of continuity, especially in the iteration of the Triple Crown Tour, which kind of rewards that continuity, and there's a much more publicized club season, I feel like, and I've already covered the U.S. Open and the Pro Championships, formerly the Pro Flight Finale. Usually, club is—I always feel more prepared for club, and in part, it's because, look— I mean, I try to talk to people every year, but the, the guys you talk to in college then graduate to clubs. So then I know them and have contact with them and have familiarity with them and know some of their stories. And in club is more about building upon what you've done in the past. So I always will try to call a certain number of coaches and players on the top teams. I mean, it's the reality is there are 48 teams at club nationals and I will broadcast eight of them, you know, eight to ten, depending on how, how it goes. So I, I I always, you know, talk to people on the top teams and then try to talk to 
perhaps a few other interesting stories and stuff that I'm kind of interested in and I'm not as familiar with on on perhaps non-top teams. Club Nationals is just so much fun because I know so many of the people and players and coaches now and every club tournament I go to and the players feel this way too. It's like a reunion, just like catching up on the sidelines with people that you know. And compared to how I felt when I did Club Nationals in 2013 when no one knew who I was and I didn't know who anyone was, now like I barely need the roster that I'm carrying around, the the roster booklet. I, I know everyone on a first name basis and they know me. So that's just fun. But I find myself rooting for the favorites of the teams that I've prepared the most for because I want to do the best broadcast that I can. And usually in the mixed division, it's the toughest one to predict. And there are always teams that show up that are, you know, seated in the double digits. And those are always the difficult games to prepare for and kind of cram at the last minute. But again, ultimate players are super eager and for and willing to chat. So even in those situations and at nationals for club, we're super lucky to know what our semifinal matchups are going to be when we go to sleep on Friday night. In college and at the U.S. Open, that's almost never the case. In that in college, the quarterfinals are Sunday morning on Memorial Day weekend, and you know it ends at 10.30, and then at 11.30 or 12 or 12.30, we're on the air. Like when UNC Wilmington beat Pittsburgh in 2014, not only was Wilmington a rival of mine that I didn't like when I was in college, but... I also had done all this prep on Pittsburgh, and they were the defending champs, and I knew everything about them, and literally spent the entire pre-quarters round sitting next to Nick Kazmarek, just kind of digging deep for stories on Pittsburgh as he was scouting the Harvard-UNC-Wilmington game, and then all of a sudden that prep goes down the drain because Pittsburgh loses in on universe to, to UNC Dub. Iconic moment that's captured on YouTube. Uh, it's a It's a fun moment to watch for sure. Absolutely. It was wild. It was wild. Anyway, that that's kind of, you know, how I feel like I feel like I prepare even more in person now because I'm able to pull people aside during games, before games, after games and like when you develop relationships with people, they develop a level of trust with you and and share more in-depth information that is invaluable not necessarily because I'm going to go on the air and say, oh, so-and-so said this exact thing, but it provides me with perspective and context to shape my other kind of opinions and statements on. And even if I don't say exactly where I got a certain piece of information, having the, the relationships at the club level and frankly at the AUDL level has, I think, enabled me to do a much better, more in-depth job of explaining why certain things happen, why certain coaching decisions are made, why someone's playing on the D-line here instead of the O-line or whatever it may be. And and that's tribute to the relationships that I've been able to build over the past, you know, five to seven years. And like, again, that's something I've really missed during the, this pandemic, the opportunity to see these types of guys and connect with them on a regular basis. I've still exchanged tons of emails with players and have done the the live shows on Instagram and Facebook Live, but obviously, you know, it's not the same. And in terms of the stories, we're going to dive deep back into the archive here. We're going to talk about your most memorable games as a broadcaster. So can you share, yeah, the most fun game you've ever commentated, the one that you've really enjoyed the most? Tell us a, a couple minute uh, summary of that game and why it was so exciting to you. 
So it's it's really hard to pick one game. And and three games really come to mind because in 2016 we kind of had this trilogy and maybe it was only a trilogy for me because I got to call all three games. But starting in the summer with USA Japan in the finals at the World Ultimate and Guts Championships in London, I mean, every single player or competitor at that event was at Allianz Stadium, Allianz Field, Allianz Stadium in outside of London. So it felt like we had like 10, 15, 20,000 people there. Like it was really hard to tell, but there was an amazing atmosphere and Japan came to play and it was just an awesome game. And I mean, obviously like that was the best USA men's ultimate team that has ever been compiled. The first time they had tryouts and didn't just give it to the club champions from the year before. So like that game was incredibly memorable and then a few weeks later, at AUDL Championship Weekend, the Seattle Cascades, Madison Radicals, Saturday night semifinal, in which the Radicals had a huge lead and Seattle came back. And there were the several iconic plays from Hussein Carnegie and Will Chen and Donnie Clark and, and others in front of a amazing crowd in itself. And like it, it Worlds... The, the crowd was certainly rooting for Japan, right? Like, USA is the big bad favorite. Japan was the underdog. But the crowd wasn't as, like, partisan as it was that night in Madison because it was a crowd of 2,500 to 3,000 Radicals fans. And because of that, like, it was really one of the first times in Ultimate that you had this rabid home crowd in this gigantic game under the lights and you go back and watch that game, and I mean, Madison certainly did some things that weren't at a high level that allowed Seattle to come back. But for the most part, that game was played at an unbelievable level, and the caliber of like highlights in that game, the degree of difficulty for certain plays was just awesome. That was an incredibly fun, shocking game. And like the other dynamic about that game is earlier in the day, the Dallas Roughnecks in their first season had had beaten the Toronto Rush in their semifinal. And Dallas was undefeated. And Madison was also undefeated going into championship weekend. So it looked like we were building up to this, this clash of the Titans, two undefeated teams in the Sunday championship game with Madison and Dallas. And obviously Seattle made these Herculean plays, so that didn't happen. And then the third Part of that trilogy was at Club Nationals that fall with the Revolver Ironside game, which was also an unbelievable game in Bo, Bo Kittredge versus Kurt Gibson. And could Ironside finally get over the hump? And Revolver did not have a single turnover in the first half. I mean, there were so many twists and turns in that second half. And, and then Ironside ends up winning on a, on a multi-turnover universe point, which I think was the only point in the game where there were multiple turnovers. That was an incredible game to watch, too, because that, that felt like just such a high level of ultimate. Both those teams were so stacked, and it, it was just a great game to call. And, and that wasn't the only Universe Point final I had that day. The Brute Squad Riot women's final also went down to the wire and, and was nuts. I mean, those kind of three games in particular stand out 
there there have obviously been many others. I mean, some AUDL buzzer beaters come to mind. Some other like pool play games at Worlds come to mind. I mean, I think also in 2016 we did I think a pool play like Canada mixed versus Czech Republic mixed a game that like Canada jumped out three zip immediately and like Czech Republic looked non-competitive. And then all of a sudden they were back tied and it went down to the wire. And sorry for any of your Canadian listeners, including perhaps Jeremy Norton, who who may be listening to this, but uh, for bringing that up. But like that game, which is like this relatively anonymous pool play game from Worlds still stands out too. So the bottom line is I've been really fortunate to call a lot of incredible games and uh, eager to, to get back calling Ultimate because it's it's an incredibly fun opportunity and and you know I obviously take it seriously and try to be the best caretaker for those moments as I can for for posterity's sake. For sure. And was that also the same year that there was the epic uh, rain at College Nationals where Pittsburgh was playing Minnesota in that Universe Point game, like super late into the to the night under the lights, Trent Dillon's last game as a Insabinor player. I mean, that whole night, that whole experience of college nationals, those semifinals that went after midnight, Minnesota Pittsburgh. Yeah, I mean that 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 ranks high up there too. Although, I mean, with those games, the delays mar from that experience. Because a lot of that day, we're kind of sitting around waiting for the game. So the games in itself were incredible. I mean, that because that or before the Minnesota-Pittsburgh game was the John Stubbs game against UNC, when basically Stubbs and Vandenberg carried Harvard all the way. So, I mean, there, there have been a lot of great epic semifinal individual performances, whether John Stubbs or Julia Schmaltz or Jack Verju or Jack Williams, obviously. Also, don't want to forget Dina Elimelech with UC San Diego. They then were the Psychos in 2019. I mean, that was still unbelievable. And I, I feel incredibly grateful to have been on the mic for those moments because those are iconic moments. 50 years from now, we'll still be talking about some of those plays Dina made uh, in that national championship game in, in Texas last year. Yeah, especially when they had to go upwind on Universe to uh, to take out Dartmouth there. That was uh, pretty epic. So now we're going to move into your least favorite game. I know you might be uh, throwing some shade here to some teams, which would be kind of funny. But what's been your least favorite game to commentate and uh, and why? That's definitely a tougher question because, I mean, even when I call a game between winless teams, you know, in college football and college basketball, I'm not calling the Dan Schulman Saturday Night College Basketball game or the Chris Fowler Saturday Night College Football game. So I've been fortunate to get some great games. I've done Miami versus Pittsburgh. I've done NC State Pitt. I've done some other Louisville and Wake Forest and Georgia Tech, North Carolina. Like, I've done games that people care about. But I've also done Wake Forest versus Elon and Wake Forest versus Rice and Pitt versus Rice and games that were, you know, 42 nothing midway through the second quarter. So those games are always tougher. From an ultimate standpoint, I mean, for the most part, I've gotten to call big time games. I mean, I remember, I think in 2014, 
I had all that prep done on Pittsburgh, as I mentioned, and was super excited for Pitt, North Carolina. And then it became Wilmington in North Carolina. And like when I was in college at Wake Forest, Darkside and and Seaman were probably the two teams I hated the most that I competed against for a variety of different reasons. So all of a sudden I'm calling those two teams that I hated in the semifinals and that is like, oh, like obviously I can't show that. I need to be professional and hype the game as as it deserves. But like, you know, that I remember that one being tough and you know, so, some really windy games that have really poor quality. I mean, there was a US Open I think in Blaine, Minnesota 2014 or 2015 around there in which the games for the most part, I think like especially the women's and mixed games were just really ugly. You know, turnover fest, the, the wind made it difficult to complete passes and you know, when it's my job to hype the highest level of ultimate and the wind is preventing the top players from looking like top players, that's a challenge. And, you know, they become just kind of luck-filled, grinding, huck-happy, you know, not the most visually pleasing aesthetic games to watch. So those are the, you know, the few games that come to mind in which, you know, perhaps my least favorite games. But at the same time, Theo, like even my least favorite games, I'm still getting paid to watch sports, as I said, and I'm still broadcasting Ultimate, so it's still not that bad in the grand scheme. For sure. And we're going to finish up the podcast here with some rapid fire. We're going to start with some this or that related to Ultimate. So these these will come out quick here. So for you, would you rather throw a flick or backhand? Probably a flick, but, you know, like when I play Frisbee golf, I'll mostly use a backhand because I can probably throw it a little bit further. But yeah, I also sure. was, was pretty proud of my flick when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, weak force, right? So uh, next question, hammer or scuba? A hammer for me. I, I never really just started to develop my scuba and work on it. And now I feel relatively comfortable throwing it. But when I was competing, I never, ever tried to throw a scuba. There was only like one or two guys on my team that would ever throw a scuba. We had one guy who was really good with his scuba and like he would be great against his own because he would flip it over the top of the cup. But the, the scuba, much like the offhand backhand, wasn't all that common from like 03 to 07 when I was playing. That's much more this past decade. Now everyone has the scuba. In that summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I threw a gazillion hammers and got to be pretty comfortable and could throw the hammer pretty far, much like my flick. Uh, would you rather drop a pole or drop a catch in the end zone? Catch in the end zone, 100%. Because you have a chance to get it back. And I guess dropping a pole you do too. But I've dropped two poles in my life. And I could tell you you know, who we were playing, where they were. One of the games we ended up winning, one of the games we weren't going to win anyway. But dropping a pole is a, is a lonely feeling. There have been guys that have dropped poles on big stages. I mean, I, like, I don't want to throw people under the bus, but I think of Danny Karlinski, you know, one of the great players in the in the last two decades in Ultimate. He dropped a pull in the 2016 AUDL Championship game. And Amber Sinecrope, one of the great women's players in the history of Ultimate for Bruce Squad, dropped a pull indoors at the World Championships in Cincinnati in 2018. So, like, it happens. If, if a disc hits your hands 10,000 times, you're going to drop it at least once. You know, statistically, 
but it's it's a crappy feeling and you just try to gotta move past it and get it back. But yeah, I'd definitely rather drop a, a score than a pull. Would you rather have five silver medals at nationals or one national championship? Uh, one national championship. It could depend like what role you're playing on the team yeah, in a way. I mean, Seinfeld does a whole bit about like the worst thing you want is a silver medal. Like a bronze, at least you got something, you know, but silver is like, hey, you almost won. So no, I, I won gold. Should ultimate be renamed? Yes or no? I understand folks' desire to rename it, but no, I don't think it should be renamed. I think it is what it is. I think Ultimate is, it's obviously not great, but it's fine. And it is what it is. And it has been for a half century plus. So we just got to keep rolling with it. There are certainly a lot of things about Ultimate that I would like to tweak. And, you know, in a perfect world, if everybody was given a blank slate and every sport was changing its name, that would probably be a net positive for Ultimate. But I'm fine with Ultimate being Ultimate. I know this was a big uh, debate there on Ulti World, but should Ultimate be in the Olympics? I don't know if it should. I, I don't think Ultimate necessarily is ready to be in the Olympics, but I think it would be great if Ultimate was in the Olympics. And I, I you know, saw the arguments of people who said it shouldn't be. I, I don't totally understand those arguments other than just wanting to remain insulated in our small community. Like, we love our sport. Let's show it off to the world. Think there's a half-decent chance that Ultimate could get into the 2028 games in L.A., but I, I certainly wouldn't say it's likely right now. And again, frankly, like, people in Ultimate don't always realize how small the Ultimate community is relative to everything else. So... I mean, I hope Ultimate continues to grow, and I think part of what I do is try to help grow the sport, you know, by broadcasting in the most professional, polished way to, to bring in fans from other sports. But yeah, it would be great if Ultimate was in the Olympics, and I hope to attend the World Games. I've never been, the World Games is like the one big Ultimate event that I haven't gotten to go to in person yet, and it was supposed to be 2021 in Birmingham, now they're pushing it to 2022, a year after the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that'll be in 2021. So, I mean, thinking that far ahead right now seems really futile. You mentioned earlier about some of those uh, windy games. So should Ultimate have a weighted disc in the wind? My gut reaction is no. Like, it is what it is, and the wind is a 8th defender and an 8th, ninth, and 10th defender in certain situations. But if somebody gave me a weighted disc that felt very much like a regular disc, I could probably be convinced otherwise. Like, if all of a sudden you gave me a 205-gram disc and it felt like a 175-gram disc, and I could throw the throws that I wanted to throw, but... You know, it, it, to me, it'd be like playing basketball with a different size basketball. Like, I guess women, the women's basketball is a different size than the men's. But, you know, like a different size baseball, a different size football. The main piece of equipment is what it is. And I think in a perfect world, I mean, ultimate could be in indoor stadiums or, you know, played in outdoor situations. Like, I don't think ultimate was meant to be played in all conditions the way football is. Like, they'll play football through snow, through wind, through sleet, through whatever. Ultimate is a very different game in those conditions, but, you know, part of being successful is overcoming those types of conditions. So 
I, I think I could be convinced, but my gut reaction is no, the disc is what it is. Okay, we're going to move into some non-sports questions for you. So I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. They can be living or they can be brought back from the dead. So who would you share this meal with? Let me pick three people who are alive right now, at least as of this morning. Barack Obama, Bill Walton, and Tom Brady. Wow, so interesting uh, worlds colliding. I like it. I grew up a big Patriots fan, so you know Tom Brady is is an icon, and Bill Walton is just an amazing character, and obviously Obama is a legend. And I think like those three people would complement each other well in a conversation because Walton's insane, but like the best kind of insane, and Obama is like dignified but personable. And and Tom Brady strikes me as just like a super caring, positive guy who has great stories. And I think all three of them would be able to bring stories out of each other. So I don't know how much I would talk. I could just listen and that would be a fun, fun dinner table to be at. So hopefully you're a music guy. This is a music question here. I'm going to give you a chance to put on a concert in your backyard. You're allowed to book any band or artist in the world, living or dead. You got to pick three and the order in which they play. So I definitely like music. I wouldn't say I am the most worldly music person. I think of my favorite bands as like the bands that I kind of fell in love with in like the 90s and early 2000s when I was like in high school listening to a lot of music. So, you know, groups like... Guster and Dave Matthews and Ben Folds Five and Counting Crows, like that's kind of my genre of of music. But like I also have an appreciation for like the Beatles and the Beach Boys and, you know, older stuff and I definitely don't have the knowledge of the current stuff. I'm sure when my children get to be of a certain age I'll learn more current stuff. That's kind of the background of my musical choice. I mean if you can have the Beatles in your backyard, I feel like you got to pick them. And the Beach Boys are kind of iconic, and I, and I do like the Beach Boys a lot. And I think of Guster as kind of my favorite band, you know, of relatively modern times. I mean, they've been around for almost three decades now. They're, I think Guster would open, and then the Beach Boys, and then the Beatles would, would cap it off. And I have an amazing backyard for this. Like, my backyard would be perfect for this. So if if Paul and and Al Jardine and, and Ryan Miller of Guster want to come over, like, we can make this happen. If they're listening, we can make this happen. Yeah, I don't know if uh, the podcast has reached out, out into those parts, but uh, one can dream, right? So hopefully Paul McCartney's listening. <laughs> so for this last question... I'm going to give you all the talent in the world, but you can't choose ultimate. What sport would you choose to play otherwise? Uh, let's make believe here you can pick any organization and position to play as well. Other than ultimate, I'd say basketball is my favorite sport to play. I consider myself a half-decent player and you know, just love playing basketball. So if I could be... The, the point guard or shooting guard for the Celtics that that would be pretty pretty cool. I also really enjoy playing tennis and and love watching tennis. So 
Like that's not really being a team, but if I could have all the talents in the world and, and compete, you know, at the national international level and, and go to the French open and Wimbledon and the Australian open and U S open and play tennis like that. Like, I think I would enjoy that. But at the same time, like you have to be a little insane to play tennis because it's an individual game. I would choose the team sport over, over the individual sport. And I, I would pick basketball. And, you know, being, being a guy, shoot, shooting a lot of threes for the Celtics. Yeah, spoken like a true uh, team sport athlete there, because I can tell you played a lot of team sports in your life. I'm the same. I, I couldn't just imagine doing the same uh, thing over and over just by yourself there. Yeah, but again, once your schedule gets a little crazier as you get older, you start to appreciate the individual sports. Like it's it's easier for me to like go play tennis or golf now than it is to you know, play basketball, especially during COVID times. That's a reality of a, a constrained schedule. And I mean, for much of my 20s, I played in several basketball games a week, you know, sometimes noon ball over at Wake Forest. Monday and Wednesday nights, there were games in like a church gym that I would go play in like seven to nine on Monday and Wednesday nights. But, you know, now when I'm traveling every weekend and I have a family at home, like I can't just take off on Monday and Wednesday nights too. So I, you know, don't play as much basketball anymore. But that's just a, a reality of, of adapting to the new chapters of life. Awesome. And so, Evan, that actually concludes our show there. So if our audience wants to find out more about you, uh, where can they find you? I know they can find past broadcasts on YouTube, USA Ultimate AUDL. But where can they find out about you and some of the things you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I'm on all the social media platforms. I'd say I, I most often post my games on twitter which is my name evan lepler and if anybody has you know questions or wants to reach out they can feel free to do so via twitter or via via email my email is audlmailbag at gmail.com is a relatively anonymous email and my name at gmail.com is is also out there as well so anybody can reach out if they want it's always cool to hear from people that's been one of the coolest parts of doing ultimate is like getting to know not just people around the country in north america but getting to meet people from all over the world and exchange emails and stay in touch and it's a really special thing because you realize like how similar we all are all around the world and how our passions for sports and life and ultimate and whatever i mean th those have been some of the most enriching experiences of my like professional career if you want to call it that is hearing from people and and getting to know people from all around the world. So especially if you're listening to this outside of North America, shoot me an email or a tweet. Let me hear from you. Awesome. We are trying to make the, the podcast go uh, across the world there. So I know there's some listeners I know in New Zealand. So big shout out to them. So Evan, once again, thank you for coming on the show, taking time out of your day to chat about your career, doing something you love. I know, um, yeah, it's super fun to see what you're doing and uh, wish you the best of luck as we hopefully uh, will have some ultimate uh, in 2021. Indeed. Theo, thanks for having me. It's always fun to go down memory lane and, and reflect on how fortunate I've been and the opportunities I've had. And I, I've been very lucky and it often brings a smile to my face. So thanks for having me on and best of luck to you. And hopefully we'll get to meet at a Toronto Rush game in 2021, if not sooner. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Jamie Erickson, a former co-captain of the mixed team Dallas Public Enemy. Hear about her journey into Ultimate and the inspiration behind starting her Instagram 
dedicated to documenting her training and life in the sport. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports, and you can see some of my commenting highlights on my YouTube channel, One and Only Sports. If you want to reach me via email, you can find me at theo.wan6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.